The following program is sponsored by Fairly Spiritual on KCIS. Well, hello everyone. It's Dr. Doug Birch, co-pastor of Evergreen Church, and you're listening to the Fairly Spiritual Show. I've noticed that we have a lot of expectations of Christianity and Christ, yet many of us don't remotely live in a way that looks like the Christianity of the New Testament. What is this all about? How can we have such high expectations of our God, yet such low expectations of our faith in comparison of the gospel of the Bible? We'll look at this on today's Fairly Spiritual Show. Please join me. Welcome to the Fairly Spiritual Show. I am Dr. Doug Birch, co-pastor of Evergreen Church. We're in the Puget Sound region. So glad you could join us. So on today's show, I'm going to just uh, talk unfiltered with you. That's usually the case. I don't want anyone to feel condemned or judged if I misspeak in any way. I apologize. I'm trying to be as unfiltered and honest here. And the things that I'm going to talk about are the things that I struggle with. Uh, the areas where I question my own faith, not question in the sense of like, oh, you're a terrible person, Doug, but the areas where I think, this is an area that you need to look at, Doug. This is an area you need to grow in. This is a place you need God to speak to you in. I think spiritual growth is ultimately not in just spending our time focusing in on what's wrong with the world. Uh, if you listen to this show at all, you'll know I don't take any pleasure in structuring a show around talking about what's wrong with the world. I think that's very counterproductive. We can certainly look at the problems in the world, but even if we do that, we should do it for the purpose of search my heart, Lord. Ultimately, the person I have the most control of, or the person I don't have much control of, but I need to learn how to allow the kingdom of God to advance through this person, it's me. So to me, Christian programming should not be about what's wrong with those guys, but how can we allow uh, the kingdom of God to advance through us? And because we're in the center of God's love and the center of God's grace, then we're going to spend our best energy not just sitting around waiting for Christ to return as we champion how great we are and how bad they are, but we're going to spend our time saying, search our hearts, Lord. Show, if, show us if there's ways that we are falling short of living out the gospel in ways that are right and pure and holy. We want to be conformed to your image. And so, so that's how I like to address things. And, and by the way, uh, this show is on the, the air. It's on the radio because of your support. And uh, right now, donations are such that I don't think we will be on more than a year. I have enough donations for a year. And beyond that, we probably won't stay on, on the radio. And that's okay. If you want this to stay on the radio more than a year... By the way, this isn't me lacking faith. I just I like to be very practical in order for us to continue on this radio station, we'd need people to donate. So if this is the kind of programming you want, where we're not spending our time focusing in on what's wrong with other people, I know some people love that kind of programming. It's, it's very uh, partisan. It's very polarizing. 
Uh, but if you're like, I don't think that should be what the church is about, or we need something else, um, then if you want this to stay on the air, then you're going to need to donate to keep it on the air. I can't have my parents uh, support all this. So with that, uh, the way to do that is go to fairlyspiritual.org and you can donate uh, $25, $50. Uh, you could donate 100000 if you wanted, but you know, probably if you're like me and everybody else, it's not going to be Mr. Moneybags that saves the day. It's just you. So if you want to donate, you can do that. Go to fairlyspiritual.org. You can also pray for us. Just pray that the Lord would continue to show me uh, where best to spend uh, this energy. I'm not doing this show to grow um, uh, the church that I serve. I'm doing this because I genuinely want to facilitate a better dialogue in Christian community. I definitely want the kingdom of God to advance. I want to reach people who are lost, people who are hurting, people who've been hurt by the church, people in the church who aren't growing or who are focusing on the wrong things. But this isn't to grow my kingdom. This isn't so I can say, look how big our church is. We, I pastor a very small church. In fact, the church that I pastor, I'm just going to be kind of unfiltered today. Who knows where this show is going to go? But I, the church that I pastor is very small in, in light of you know, what is considered success in the world. And uh, right now, uh, the building we're in, uh, we rent it from a school district, and we'll be kicked out of this building by January. And I don't even know if we're going to have another building to go to. We're looking for other places, but we can't even find them. We're, we're in the, the Auburn area, uh, if you know the Puget Sound region. And so frankly, I'm standing before the Lord not even knowing if my church is going to exist. The church I serve is going to exist in a year. And that's difficult, right? Just to do something and go, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even know. Now I'm praying that the Lord will provide a space for us to be at. But I have to trust that God is good, and I'm just going to be faithful. And I'm going to serve Him. But I'm not going to be on this show desperately trying to grow our church. My heart is for the kingdom of God to advance. And my heart is for each of us to grow closer to the Lord. And, and if, by the way, if you want to text uh, the show and talk about how God's been ministering to your heart, I'd love to hear from you. 360-818-4513. That's 360-818-4513. So with all that said... Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, of how uh, many of us, and, and I could be in this category at some times, we complain to God about faith. Or there's some who get upset that this faith thing doesn't work, or this Christianity thing doesn't work, or, or we abandon our faith, or we abandon Christ because we're, you know, I tried it and it just didn't work. And and I'd like to say that in many cases, even most cases as Americans, we never really began to pursue this faith because the faith of the Bible is so different than American Christianity. The cost and the consequences that we see in the Bible are so very different than the cost and the consequences of being an American Christian. Which makes me wonder, and this is when I stand before the Lord, have I truly ever followed you, Jesus, in the way that the disciples followed you or the New Testament church followed you? Because the consequences of me following Jesus are nothing remotely like the consequences of the New Testament church following Jesus. And because the consequences were so different then than they are now, I don't know if I remotely even understand how Paul and Peter and 
Mary and Martha and anyone in the New Testament understood their faith and their relationship with Jesus. I don't, I don't know if I begin to grasp the kind of faith they had in comparison to my faith. And one of the most simple ways to put this is that when you became a follower of Christ in the New Testament era, you lost everything. Or there was a genuine chance that you would lose everything. And this we kind of just glaze by. Because as Americans, we're just reading the scripture for, well, well how does it speak to me? You know, I need, I need help with my marriage. I need help with my career. I need a, a, you know, a car that works. I need to get out of debt. I, you know, whatever it is, I, I have problems that need to be solved. And so immediately we read the instructions of Scripture and the stories of Scripture to apportion those stories to us. And the Scripture is amazing in that, yes, it comes into our culture, into our generation, and, and the Scripture speaks to us. But sometimes we are so quick to have the Scripture speak to us that we forget to see the Scripture in its first context. The reality is, and, and you need to understand this, and many of you know this, but during the time of Jesus, in Eastern cultures, um, this was the structure of the family. In Eastern cultures, the eldest male, the oldest male, the oldest living male of a family controlled that family. I'm not saying this is right. This is just what happened. So, for instance, if you were born into a family, your religion would be whatever the eldest male's religion is. So it didn't matter what you believed. It didn't matter what you discovered in life. Your religion, your faith, was to be the faith of the eldest male. Not just your dad's faith, but your grandfather's faith. Whoever, or your great-grandfather's faith, if he's still alive, and probably your grandfather's faith because people didn't live as long, but whoever is the eldest male, that's your faith. If someone asked you, you know, who's the God, you know, what's the God you believe in? You didn't think, hmm, well, you know, I've, I've measured my thoughts about existence, and I feel drawn to this faith expression. You didn't even think in those ways. It was just, well, we go to this temple because this is where Grandpa goes to. Or we worship at this tree or this pole or this place of worship or to this pagan deity. We do these rituals because this is what Granddad does. If you were a slave and you were in a house, uh, you know, a slave, and your master, whatever your master believed, whatever your master's religion was, that was to be your religion. Now, I'm sure there were slaves who still had their own secret faith and secret gods or gods that they, they worshipped, but the reality is you could not express that outwardly. As a slave, you were supposed to follow the religion of the eldest male. If you were a, a wife, you didn't get to pick your own faith. You didn't say, well, my husband has one faith, but I have another faith. No, your faith was to be the faith of your husband, and your husband's faith was to be the faith of his father and his father. When it came to careers, you didn't get to pick your own career. Your career was the career of your father and your father's father. You didn't get to say, well, what am I good at? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? You did what your father told you to do. And hear me clearly. I'm not saying this is a good structure. This is just the structure of the time. So this is the climate, the culture that Jesus came into. And Jesus came into this culture, the Son of God, the Word of God incarnate came into this world. God took on flesh and dwelt among us and advanced the kingdom of God and the purposes of God, and people came alive into new life through accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Jesus became life everlasting, life everlasting to slaves, life everlasting to children, life everlasting to spouses and wives and widows and 
the poor and the marginalized and the weak and the oppressed and people who had no voice. They became followers of Jesus. And when they became followers of Jesus, suddenly they had a faith that was different than their father and their grandfather. Suddenly they had a faith that was different than their husband. Suddenly they had a faith that was different than their master. Now I want you to imagine this. They had a faith that was different than their master, different than their father, different than their culture. And then Jesus said to them, okay, I want you to do something else. Not just to believe in me, but I want you to be baptized. Now, baptism in this culture is a public profession that is more than just, hey, I want everyone to celebrate that I'm a Christian. In our culture, we get baptized to say, hey, come on, celebrate that I'm a Christian. Uh, no, baptism was a death, uh, death signature for some people. Baptism was, once I publicly am baptized, this means I will be disowned by my family. Once I am publicly baptized, this means I will be beaten by my master or sold. Once I am baptized, it means I will be divorced from my husband. Once I am baptized, it means I will be disowned from the family business. Once I am baptized, I will no longer have any inheritance in my family. Once I am baptized, this world as I know it, I am dead to. I have no economic future. I have no family future. I have no cultural future. I am an alien, a foreigner, a forgotten person in this culture. I am seen as an enemy of this culture. Once I am publicly baptized, I have dishonored my grandfather and my father, my husband, my master, my culture, my community. Once I proclaim the name of Jesus in a public fashion, I have dishonored everyone and I no longer have a future or a present in this culture. The only thing I have is Jesus and this new Jesus community. That's it. So this was the cost of public baptism. And this is the radical nature of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was so great to people, that the gospel was so powerful to people, that the forgiveness of sins and, and the death of Jesus on the cross and, and the power of the gospel was so great that people were willing to surrender all to follow Jesus. It wasn't just a song to sing that I surrender all, but literally when they gave their life to Christ Jesus and they went into those baptismal waters, they surrendered the love of their family, their earthly family. They surrendered their careers. They surrendered their property. They surrendered their inheritances. They surrendered their standing in society with no hope of ever getting it back. They completely died to this life for the eternal life to come. That's why we see in the book of Acts that there were so many poor people and that uh, people sold their possessions to be distributed among the poor. It wasn't just that they cared for the poor. People were becoming poor because when they gave their life to Christ, they were disowned by their families. So what you find in the New Testament church, that there were two kinds of people, uh, those who were the eldest male who owned their property, who had provisions, and those who weren't. Those who weren't had no authority, no property, no money, and they became immediately poor. Those who owned their property were the eldest males who had control of things, like Barnabas would be an example. They sold their property, gave it to the disciples, and the disciples distributed it to those who had nothing. And they were bound together as a family who was uni united not by this culture, not by familial ties, but by Christ Jesus and the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is a unity that is so contrary to almost anything preached in the New Testament church. 
you and I have not had to go through this. Now, maybe some have, maybe some who are listening right now, you've come from other cultures. Maybe some of you have come out of certain faith expressions. I know people who've come out of Muslim expressions have lost families and friends, have been disowned, have been shamed, have been shunned. But for most Americans, we've never faced anything like that. In fact, we can choose to enter in and enter out of. I guess enter out of, it would be exit. We can enter into or exit the faith. We can pick and choose. We can get a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of the world. We can give a little bit to God or we don't have to. It can be a season of our life. It can be something we do when times are tough. Jesus is a rescue pod. In fact, Jesus is literally the icing on the cake. He's the wedding topper. We're getting married. I guess we should have a pastor there. So let's get a pastor. We've paid for a nice wedding gown, and we've paid thousands of dollars for a wedding hall and for a nice reception, and I guess we should have a pastor too, because it'd be nice to have a religious wedding. Think about how absurd that is in the New Testament context. If it was, hey, it'd be nice to have a Christian wedding would mean you'd be disowned by everyone and have no future. No one said, it would be nice to have a Christian wedding in that culture. A Christian wedding might be your death sentence. But in our culture, eh, we don't really serve the Lord. We don't go to church. We don't really give our money, our time, our energy, any of our attentions really to Jesus. Jesus is just kind of an afterthought. But on our wedding, sure, why not? Let's have a pastor in front will do vows before God. That is the exact opposite of the gospel. And yet we see that as an expression of being Christians or a Christian nation. We do the same with death. Well, someone never went to church, didn't follow the Lord, didn't give any money for the kingdom of God, didn't pray to God, didn't worship God, didn't honor God, but they're dead now. So let's have a pastor there at the funeral and let's do something Christian. Again, if you did that in the New Testament context, where someone had honored other gods their whole life, but when they die, you had a Christian wedding every, or a Christian funeral, everyone who showed up at that funeral would now be persecuted and disowned by that culture. Again, these are contrary things. Why do I bring this up? Because I don't think we've begun to understand the cost of following Jesus. I've been looking at the story of Stephen, and Stephen amazes me. The deacon Stephen. Stephen gives everything because the presence of Jesus is enough. Stephen becomes a deacon because the disciples don't want to quote-unquote wait on tables. They want to pray and preach the word, so this ministry is formed called deacons. And so Stephen is considered a man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. So he becomes a deacon to be able to deal with the disputes that are about the distribution of food. And so he's not able to spend the time that the disciples are able to spend in Solomon's colonnade or in the temple with praying and preaching because he has to deal with the stuff that the disciples don't want to deal with. But Stephen so much values the presence of God that the scripture says that Stephen's face in, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 15 of Acts, it says his face was like an angel. And that's a clear descriptor that his face shined the glory of God. And it's a clear descriptor that his face shined like the glory of God. 
are with the glory of God because he spent time with God on a daily basis. For Stephen, he had not become a Christian for prestige or power or authority or for cultural significance or because it'd be a nice thing to do on his wedding or a good proper thing to do for the funeral. He became a Christian because he met the resurrected presence of Jesus because Jesus was everything and is everything, and his face radiated the glory of God. He sacrificed everything to serve Jesus. And they attacked Stephen's authority, and they attacked his preaching, and he stood before those who were persecuting him, and his face shone like the face of an angel. And it says in chapter 7, verse 1, that when Stephen begins to give this long sermon, one of the longest sermons, which I believe is where the author of Acts is honoring Stephen and saying Stephen's role is one of the most honorable roles in the New Testament. He took a job no one else wanted to take, and he faithfully proclaimed the gospel, and he was persecuted and martyred for this, and he is worthy of honor and praise. But Stephen starts his sermon by saying, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. It's interesting that the scripture says, his face shone like an angel. And the first thing Stephen points at is he says, the God of glory. And you know why he's saying that? Because his face radiates the glory of God. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. You see this glory on my face, the glory that I have because I've spent time with God. That God of glory appeared to Abraham, and that God of glory is appearing to me, and that God of glory is enough for me to serve with all of my life. Then Stephen gives this powerful message, and at the end of his message, it leads to a powerful martyring. When you get to the end of the message and in Acts 7, 54, uh, Stephen says these powerful words, and then he says basically uh, to the leaders, you have rejected God, and you have rejected God's glory, and you have rejected God's will. And, they, and they, they grow enraged at him saying these things. And then again, we have a mentioning of God's glory. And I just want to read this to you. This is uh, Acts 7, 54. Again, you see the mentioning of God's glory. And this is very important because this to me is much more of what our faith is to be about not convenience, not prestige, not power, not politics, not convenience, but about God's presence and God's glory. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heavens, into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Where's Jesus? Right where the glory is. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And stoning usually meant that they would put you like over a ledge or at a hill that was like down below you, like a couple, maybe, maybe like 12 feet below, and then they would throw a stone on you. And if that stone didn't kill you, others would throw stones on you as well. And as they were throwing stones on him, the apostle, who would eventually become the apostle Paul, but Saul was there gladly calling out the death of Stephen. And here was Stephen calling out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I bet you he was looking at Saul. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, for Stephen, what was his reward? 
It was the presence of God. In the book of Exodus, Moses says to God, when God's leading the children of Israel uh, to the promised land, or at least the beginning of the journey, out of bondage in Egypt, into the wilderness, eventually to the promised land, God says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. And Moses says, do not send us from here without your presence. For your presence is the only thing that distinguishes us from the rest of the people on the face of the earth. Is God's presence enough for you? Is relationship with Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough? Is surrendering to Jesus enough? I want to encourage you this week. Stop focusing on all the things around you that you think are unjust and wrong and all the things you want and you think you need. And think about these men and women of the New Testament. What they sacrificed. What they pursued. They pursued an eternal relationship with Jesus. They died to everything so they could spend time in the presence of Jesus. Isn't Jesus' presence enough for you and me? I hope it is. I really hope it is. Hey, thanks for listening to today's show. Uh, if you'd like to text me, 360-818-4513. That's 360-818-4513. And if you'd like this show to stay on the air more than just one year, uh, I need you to donate. Go to fairlyspiritual.org and donate today. That's fairlyspiritual.org. Now make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. He has next steps for you. He is a good God. He's going to help you. He's going to lead you. I will see you next time. Proceeding broadcast was sponsored by Fairly Spiritual. When you write or call this program, be sure to mention you heard it on KCIS.